you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 16. And we're going to look at verses 16 through 24. Yes, we're still in the book of John. We might be in the book of John as far as when I'm preaching until the Lord comes back. I don't know. But you have to understand something. From chapters 14 until now, this is Jesus ministering to his own. The world already rejected him. Israel rejected him. And now he's ministering hours before his death to his own. Ready to have nails pierce his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns on his head, and he's ministering to his own. That's the kind of savior you have. He cares about you when you go through the deep pains of life. And he tells his disciples that in a little while, they're not going to have his presence with them and they're going to experience sorrow. And they, of course, didn't understand this. The disciples at this point didn't understand anything. But little did they know that their sorrow was going to explode into joy. Amen. Sorrow comes to every one of us. Did you know that? Yeah. Every, of course you know that. Because every one of us has experienced sorrow. But hold on. Trust in Christ. And pray. And your sorrow will explode into joy. Joy comes in a deep-rooted knowledge of a Savior. Let's turn to John 16, 16 through 24. If you don't mind, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting with verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, breathe your life and heart into our hearts as we look at your word today. Convict us, encourage us, 
and comfort us through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What is happiness? What is joy? If I ask ten people what happiness is, what joy is, guess what? You'll get ten different answers. Happiness for every individual varies. For example, this is a good example. Happiness for my wife, Kim, is sitting on the couch on a stormy day, sipping a cup of tea with lemon and honey in it, wrapped in a blanket, watching the Hallmark Channel. (laughs) Happiness for me, when she's doing that on a stormy day, is going to the coast and fishing for striped bass. That's happiness for me. See how different we are? Happiness varies. Happiness for some may be having a day doing nothing. Happiness for some may be racing cars. Happiness for some may be playing cards or being on a tropical island, lounging on a white sandy beach, sipping iced tea. I don't know. Whatever it is, there are certain things that make us happy or joyful. But whatever it is, happiness is defined as this. Feeling or showing pleasure or contentment. So think about what makes you happy or joyful. I remember, and it's still etched in my mind, I was 13 years old, and my mom and dad were having their 25th anniversary. They had this big thing. It was a catering hall. Um, the, all the whole family was invited. Uh, they had a band. And I remember my brother asked the band if he could sit in and play the drums. And he did. And then I asked if I could play the drums. This was the starting of my drumming career. And I got behind the drums and I said, the band leader said to me, okay, we're going to play the Beatles song. I saw her standing there. And I played it and the whole place went crazy. They went nuts. And my mother and father said, I had no idea you can play drums. And I said, I had no idea either. But I guess it was innate in me and you know, and so... Um, my, I was graduating from grammar school, going into high school, and they said to me, well, what do you want for your graduation? I said, a drum set. And I could see their faces. They, were, they looked at each other. And it was more, not for the noise, but more for the money, because, you know, a drum set was a little pricey, and they didn't have that kind of money. But they agreed. And I'll never forget when it came in boxes, the truck delivered it, and I got my first drum set, and I'm telling you, that happiness, I could still remember to this day. That's, that's so many things will make you happy. I'm sure you have stories like that. By the way, the Bible used both terms, happiness and joyful, synonymously. The Greek word for joy is kara, and means gladness, state of rejoicing, happiness. The modern church, unfortunately, use the two words differently. And I used to use it differently too. They, they separate happiness and joyful. But really, in Scripture, happiness and joy are interchangeable. They're used interchangeably throughout Scripture. So in other words, if you're joyful in, in the Lord, guess what? You're happy. If you're happy in the Lord, you're joyful. Did you know that God gives happiness or joy to the believer as well as the Unbeliever, did you know that? That even the unbelieving world experiences happiness and joy that comes from the Lord? What does it say? 
It rains on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. That's a merciful, benevolent God we serve. It's unfortunate sometimes Christians don't treat the world the same way. With benevolence and kindness. We just need to really decide where our joy or happiness comes from. Are we happy in the Lord? Or are we content with the happiness the world provides? The only lasting joy comes from knowing Christ and knowing that your sins are forgiven. And here's the proposition I am going to give to you today. And I want you to think about this. Where does your joy come from? Let me ask you right up front. Is your joy slash happiness coming from knowing God or is it solely, and I underline that word solely, coming from things? The marriage is good. I'm happy. The kids are good. I'm happy. Finances are good. I'm happy. Health is good. I'm happy. Or maybe these aren't so good. So you turn to drugs or alcohol. That makes you happy. You drown yourself in hobbies. That makes you happy. You drown yourself in sports. That makes you happy. You drown yourself in TV. You play the lottery, etc. Whatever. You drown yourself in these things to make yourself happy. Now hear me. Because some people don't listen sometimes. Some of these things I just mentioned, in and of themselves are not wrong. And it's okay. And God gave us everything to enjoy. I enjoy fishing. It's, it's, it brings joy to me for a certain amount of time. I enjoy watching TCM. On, I like that. I like watching you know, black and white movies. What brings you joy? It's okay. You don't let your eternal lasting joy come from those things. But when you're going through a fiery trial, do you still have joy? That's how you could tell. If you're trusting in things, or if your lasting joy is coming from Christ himself. Let me ask you again, where does your lasting joy come from? There's three points I want to bring out to you in this passage. The lack of joy. We're going to see that in the disciples. The source of joy. Where their joy was going to come from. And the fullness of joy. Let's look at point one, the lack of joy. Let's read verses 16 through 20 again. A little while, and you will see me no longer. This is Jesus speaking. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that. They wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now there's much disagreement about exactly what Jesus meant when he said a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while you will see me scholars vary on this thing did he mean that he was going to be crucified and killed and then they wouldn't see him and after he was raised from the dead then they would see him again or did he mean that after he physically ascended back to his father 
he would be there until he returns the second coming and then they will see him? Or did he mean this in a spiritual sense? The day of Pentecost came when the Spirit fell. Did he mean that? You're going to see me again when the Spirit came. Most of the scholars, and I tend to agree, think Jesus' death and burial and resurrection was what he was talking about. And although, although I think all three can have application to us, but I think the first one is more applicable. But back to the first one. When he was crucified and died, they would not be able to see him because he was sealed in the tomb. So they weren't going to see him anymore. He was dead. And I think what solidifies this is what John says in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, now listen to this, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Here, John is speaking about seeing the resurrected Christ which, as Dr. Gary Berg says, was foundational to John's testimony. He didn't see Jesus, and then guess what? He saw Jesus. But imagine the perplexity and the sorrow that filled the disciples' heart that night before his death and resurrection, especially between his death and resurrection. Put yourself in their place. I mean, here they're saying to themselves, we walked three years with Jesus. He raised the dead. I mean, he can't get any greater miracle than that. And he he opened blind eyes. He healed paralytics. He opened up deaf ears. We walked with him. We watched him preach. Three years. This was marvelous. And listen, we don't even have to find food anymore. I mean, Jesus fed the multitude. With five loaves and two small fish. I mean, he's the one who's going to save us from the Roman oppression. He's the one who's going to be the redeemer of Israel. And now he's saying, you're not going to see me anymore? If we were there, we'd have the same perplexity as they did. I don't think any of us can really comprehend the heartache they were feeling. But here's a glimpse into what they were feeling. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 17. After After Jesus was resurrected, he found two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus and walked with them. But they didn't recognize him. So listen to what Luke tells us Starting at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And this is key. And they stood still, looking sad. The Greek word sad means they were discouraged. 
It was gloomy. Why? Why were they so sad? Why did they have sorrow in their hearts? Well, first of all, they didn't understand that Jesus had to suffer first and then enter his glory. That was repulsive to them that Israel Messiah would suffer and die. They thought that Jesus, once again, would usher in an immediate earthly kingdom. But that's not what happened. So they had deep sorrow and confusion in their hearts. And it was because of their lack of understanding that they were perplexed and sorrowful. And gracious, loving Jesus, of course, knew their confusion. And doesn't reprimand them, but what does he do? He continues to explain to them further. But nonetheless, they had this deep perplexity and sorrow in their hearts. The idea that they wouldn't have Jesus cut them to the heart. Their joy was removed because they were not focused on the eternal Jesus, but on the temporary, physical presence of Jesus. That's what they were focused on. And the fact that now they were going to face and bear the pain of persecution alone, or at least they thought they were. A lack of understanding, the Savior, led to them being sorrowful. They thought they were losing His presence. When you and I lose sight of God's presence, we can have deep sorrow in our hearts. How does this apply to us today? Well, we're not looking for the physical presence of Jesus. I think we all agree to that because we understand that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't see him now, but we have the Holy Spirit which confirms in our hearts that we will see him when he returns. In other words, just like the disciples didn't see Jesus after he was crucified, and then they saw him when he was resurrected, we don't see him now, but we will see him physically in heaven, but we will, in heaven, but we will see him when he returns. When the resurrection, what the resurrection was for the disciples, his return is to us. They saw him at the resurrection, we will see him when he returns. But the big difference between the disciples and us is this. We have the Holy Spirit who gives us insight and understanding. understanding, And they didn't have it at that time because the Holy Spirit had not yet come. But even though we do have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts, Christians still at times have sorrow because somehow we lose sight of His presence. Whatever reason for losing sight of his presence, you and I will experience sorrow and confusion thinking, maybe he's not with me. Or you're experiencing sorrow and confusion from a deep trial you're going through or persecution. There's no joy but heartache and sorrow. There's a lack of joy when you lose sight of his eternal presence in you. One of the problems we have sometimes as Christians is we forget that he's an eternal God. And when he came to live within us at regeneration, the eternal spirit came to live with us. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. John 14, 16. Jesus said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you what? Forever. Jesus never left you. In spite of all the troubles you're going through, in spite of all the hardships you go through, what the problem is, it's our faulty perception. Also, just like the disciples had confusion and sorrow because they didn't understand Jesus, 
They didn't understand what Jesus was saying to them. We too can have confusion and sorrow because we fail to understand his word. Whether it's through bad teaching or lack of teaching or lack of study or you're a new believer and have little understanding of his word. Whatever it is, when we don't understand Jesus, at times it can bring confusion and sorrow in our hearts. Whenever you and I fail to understand what Jesus Understand whether, uh, Jesus, whether it's failure to understand his word or painful trial you're going through, this is lack of joy. I'm not addressing here no joy because of willful sin. That's going to leave you with no joy. Willful sin will leave you the most, if you're a Christian and you're living in sin, you'll be the most miserable Christian. You'll be the most miserable person, actually. Or willful disobedience to his word, which will give, give you no joy. This is another sermon. But if you're living in willful sin or willful disobedience, you're not going to experience the joy of Christ. But I'm speaking to faithful Christians who have trials and a lack of understanding as part of our growth. And, and I really believe God allows these things to help us to seek him more so we can truly have his joy. That's what he wants. He wants us to have his joy. That's the lack of joy, point one. Point two, the source of joy. Verses 20 and 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now when Jesus says, truly, truly, what do you think he means? Pay attention. Anytime, listen, the truth of the matter is, you pay attention to every word of God. But when he says truly, truly, you better really pay attention. He makes it clear that they were going to weep and lament and be sorrowful. When? When he was taken away from them and he's crucified and was buried. That's when they would experience the pinnacle of sorrow and grief. And when Christ died, that's exactly what happened to them. John 20 tells us after Jesus was crucified, Mary Magdalene, who loved the Lord and our Savior, went and stood at the tomb weeping. You know what that word weeping means? It means she was, she was beyond, she was, uncont- she was uncontrollably weeping. You couldn't console her. Her heart was shattered. She couldn't be comforted. And I believe the other disciples as well had great grief as they watched their Lord being crucified and buried. But while they were weeping from sorrow, guess what? The world, meaning the Jews, and all the followers of the Jewish leaders, and the Roman soldiers, what were they doing? They were rejoicing. They got what they wanted. They got rid of the troublemaker, Jesus. Or at least they thought they did. But three days later, when the tomb could not hold the divine Son of God, and Jesus came back to life, The disciples weeping, lamenting, and sorrow exploded into joy. It just didn't turn into joy. It exploded into joy. He's alive. He's alive. 
We see him again. Just as Jesus said. What was their source of joy? Knowing Christ. What's your source of joy? Verse 22 again. So also... So, you, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. You know, the joy that the Lord puts in your heart, no one can take that from you. Jesus, of course, the master storyteller, continues to speak about their sorrow and how it will turn to joy by giving them an illustration. He says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for, the, for, the, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So, when a woman is in labor, maybe I'm not qualified to speak this, but since Jesus spoke it and it's in the word of God, I will. But when a woman is in labor, and you could ask any of the women here in our church who had children. Uh, when a woman is in labor, no matter how short it is, it feels long. Because of the deep pain they are experiencing. But once the baby comes, and I've heard this story many times, since I've never experienced that, once the baby comes, the pain is gone, and she does not remember it because the joy of the baby is present. All the mothers saying amen to that? (laughs) In other words, listen, the joy of the baby overshadows the remembrance of the pain. Listen carefully. The baby who was the cause of the mother's pain has now become the cause of joy. What caused the disciples' pain and sorrow? Jesus' death. So they couldn't see him for a while. And that caused them pain. The cross caused them pain. But the same Jesus that caused them this pain because of his death and his, uh, his resurrection caused them great joy because they saw him again. Please listen carefully. Jesus didn't replace their sorrow with joy. Didn't replace it with joy. He transformed their sorrow into joy. Because Jesus was not and will not be defeated by the grave. In other words, he didn't substitute their sorrow and replace it with joy. He took their sorrow and transformed it into joy. Big difference. And Christians can now rejoice in the cross. It shouldn't bring sorrow to our hearts because the same cross that brought sorrow is, as one commentator said, would be the cause of our joy. You know, sometimes we, we watch these shows, The Passion of the Christ, and, and we weep so much over the cross. Oh, poor Jesus. No, Jesus says, weep for yourselves. Not poor Jesus. I obeyed my father's will and went to the cross for you. That should bring us joy. What did Paul say? I preach Christ and him crucified. He goes on to say, this commentator, he says, the dark shadows of sorrow and grief cast by the cross fled before the brilliant glorious light of the resurrection and the coming of the spirit on the day of Pentecost. We should rejoice in the cross of Christ. What's causing your sorrow and pain now? I don't know. Only you can answer that. God wants to take that which is causing you pain and sorrow and transform it into joy. Do you believe that? Yes. Are you sick and discouraged? Let God 
transform that into lasting joy. How many of you ever heard of Johnny's, Johnny Erickson Tata? I usually, I usually use her as an example because she's my hero. In Chesapeake Bay, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, she had a, a diving accident where she became a quadriplegic. From what I remember, bitter sorrow filled her heart, but God took that sorrow and transformed it into a joy, and now she has a ministry worldwide. Worldwide. And she's bringing joy into people's lives with wheelchairs. The ministry of wheelchairs. And plus, she's, she speaks very well. I've heard her. Let God transform your sorrow into lasting joy. When Watch God turn your sorrow into inexpressible joy. Not so with the world. The world's values are different than the Christians. In our culture today, the world is calling good evil and evil good. They couldn't care less about Christ's death and resurrection. They rejoice now in the love of this world, but later will grieve for eternity because of their lack of love for God and Christ. But the believer's temporal sorrow now will be transformed into permanent joy when we see him face to face. Let's talk about sorrow in this life. Does it mean we're always going to have sorrow until we see Jesus? No. No. God wants us to have joy during, during the hardships. It's possible to have joy during trials, during discipline, when God is even disciplining us. It's possible to have joy um, during the times when we're being persecuted. Now, America doesn't know too much about persecution, but if you read Voice of the Modern magazine, you could see these people that are being persecuted unto death, some of them, have joy. Can we learn from them? Yeah. James, first chapter, second to the fourth verse says, Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy. And First Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, Peter speaking to the persecuted church, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was, were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, Peter and James both understood grief. They both understood grief. You read the Gospels. Much more than most of us. And yet, their sorrow was transformed into joy. And that's why they could command the believer to count it all joy in trials and rejoice in suffering. They weren't giving us a suggestion. They were saying, count it all joy. Rejoice in your suffering. Because they went through it. And Christ took their sorrow and transformed it into joy. What does God desire to do in our trials of persecution? He wants to transform our grief into joy. God wants our joy to come from His Son. John fifteen eleven. These things I have spoken to you that what? 
my joy, Jesus is talking about his joy, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. How do we get Christ's joy? Stay attached to the vine. Jesus Christ is divine. John 15, 5. Abide in his word and let his word abide in you. John 8, 8, 31. When we know Christ is when we know Christ in this way, we stay, we, we're, we're attached to him, we're abiding in him, we're letting his word abide in us. Any sorrows you experience is going to be transformed into inexpressible joy. By the way, that is the mark of genuine salvation, abiding in Christ and let his word abide in you. Is it possible? Is it possible? Joyless Christian? Look, I understand we have sorrow at times, but is it possible for a Christian never to experience joy? We can have sorrow at times, but always sorrowful? The source of our lasting joy, the source of your lasting joy is Jesus Christ. This is a song from the 80s from the contemporary group GLAD, which you always see me quote because they're one of my favorite groups back then. It's called Joy Comes in the Morning. It's a great song, biblically sound lyrics. And, and the chorus says this, Joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the knowledge of a Savior. Joy comes in Christ Jesus. Joy comes in the promises of our King. You want to know where your lasting joy comes from? It doesn't come from things. It comes from your King, Christ. This is an article in May 1993's Turning Point magazine called The Bible Friend. And it says this. Men have pursued joy in every avenue imaginable. Some have successfully found it while others have not. Perhaps it would be easy to describe what joy cannot be found. Not in unbelief. Voltaire was an infidel of the most pronounced type. He wrote, I wish I had never been born. Joy doesn't come in pleasure. Lord Bryan lived a life of pleasure if anyone did. He wrote, the worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Doesn't come in money. Jay Gould, the American millionaire, had plenty of it. When dying, he said, I am suppose I am the worst, I am the most miserable man on earth. Not in position of fame. Lord Beaconsfield enjoyed more than his share of both. He wrote, youth is a mistake, Manhood is struggle, old age of regret. Not in military glory. Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his day. Having done so, he wept in his tent before he said, there are no more worlds to conquer. Where does real joy, where can real joy be found? Christ and Christ alone. I love that song that says in Christ alone. Not only our salvation in Christ alone, but our joy comes in Christ alone. Let me ask you again. Where does your joy come from? We looked at the lack of joy. The source of joy is in Christ alone. Let's look at the fullness of joy. Verses 23 and 24. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly I say to you. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. That what? Your joy may be full. Up to this point, the disciples asked Jesus himself if they wanted something. Or prayed to the Father directly as he told them in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in Heaven. But after the cross, 
When the Holy Spirit came, a new way of praying was initiated. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now it's about asking the Father in Jesus' name. By the way, this is the third time that night. Third time that night that Jesus told them this truth, underscoring its importance. He told them in John 14, John 15, and now in John 16. And that's why today we pray in what? In Jesus' name. But sadly, many think that by tagging on the phrase in Jesus' name, they can ask for whatever they want and they will get it. Right? Who's notorious for that? The Word of Faith movement. The prosperity gospel. They're notorious. Believe and ask in Jesus' name, you're going to get whatever you want. But James makes it clear in the fourth chapter and the third verse. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Praying in Jesus' name is not some magical formula. Praying in Jesus' name, and I'm going to quote Dr. Kent Hughes, says, he says it means coming only in his merit, not our own. Christ's full name is Lord Jesus Christ, which means Jehovah Savior, God's anointed. It is this name whose merit we must humbly pray. We cannot think that somehow God will hear us because of our virtue. We come by virtue of His merit. Poverty of spirit is the basis on which we approach God. And our ongoing poverty is the crown of blessing. If we learn this, if we come to God in poverty of spirit, we can expect our prayers to be answered. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we are acknowledging by faith Christ's merits. What He accomplished on our behalf. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So sometimes when I pray, I don't say in Jesus' name. But God knows in my heart that I'm coming to Him in Christ's merit. We can't take in Jesus' name as a magic formula. We pray in Jesus' name for what it means. By the way, asking is an imperative. He's not suggesting that we ask. He's commanding us that we ask. That we ask the Father in His name. Don't let commands of Scripture throw you for a loop. You know, when God commands His children, it's not a dictatorship command. Do this or else. Pray or else. No, no. His commands are not burdensome. And it's for our advantages as well as His glory. God the Father even commanded God the Son... In Psalm 2nd chapter, the 8th verse. Ask of me. Now, this is the father talking about the son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. So commands for the believer, guess what? Are pleasurable. But here's the cause and effect for the believer's prayer. The cause, ask. Ask. The effect, you will receive and have full joy. Simple. Ask and receive. Answered prayer, according to this text, brings joy. But we need to qualify, we really need to qualify, especially in America, whatever we ask. What does that mean? If I want to pray for a Mercedes or a mansion, Is that what Jesus is talking about? Let's briefly discuss the conditions in the framework of asking. 
I'm going to give you seven quick points. You must ask. James 4, third verse. Got to ask. You must ask with right motives. James 4 and 1 John 5. We must ask in Jesus' name, according to his merits. John 16, 23, which we just read. You must believe when you ask. James 1, Hebrews 11. We are not to be in willful sin. We are to keep his commands and believe in the name of the Son of God. Psalm 68, 18 and 1 John 3. We pray according to his will. In other words, we ask for what Christ would ask. 1 John 5.14 We pray and receive that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 14.13 And listen to this. Even when you and I can't articulate our prayers, we're commanded to pray. We're commanded... No, we're not commanded, actually. The Spirit will pray in and through us. If we can't articulate, and He'll answer our prayers. Sometimes... We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to articulate prayers. The Spirit has you back. God has you covered. Romans 8.26 How awesome is that? That even when we can't articulate our prayers, the Spirit does. So these are conditions in the framework of asking. And I want to say this. When God answers your prayers because of what Jesus did on the cross, that will transform any suffering you have into joy, full joy. No praying equals lack of joy. Praying and having your prayers answered equals joy. Repeated joy, mega joy, complete joy, full joy. You know, God wants us to have a joy, not like the world gives. He wants to have His joy, which is incredible. And when God answers our prayers and we have this joy, guess what? The Father is glorified. The highest form of joy for you is that you bring glory to God. That's the highest form of joy for any believer. When we ask God for anything according to His will, He promises to answer us. And listen, when your prayers are fruitful, God is glorified, make no mistake about it, and your joy will be full or complete. Here's the pattern. Listen to the pattern. The cross, the resurrection, suffering, joy, suffering, then joy. He will take your suffering and transform it into unspeakable joy and full of glory. And I want to conclude with three questions. I want want you to think about this. If you have lack of joy, the first point, why? Only you can answer that. I can't. If you don't know why, I would suggest listen to point one again when it goes up on Sonship's website. That's what we have it there for you. So you can listen to sermons over again if you miss something, if you want to copy scriptures down. And you could also ask God, why am I lacking joy? Number two, where does your lasting joy come from? Only one possible answer. Christ alone. Talk about lasting joy. Remember, let's differentiate the things in this life that bring us temporary, temporary joy. God is not opposed to that. Talking about lasting joy. If it comes from anything else, which it won't, at best it's temporal. And number three, do you have the fullness of joy? In other words, are your prayers fruitful? 
Are you always praying and you never get an answer? And is your highest form of joy to bring glory to God? You can only answer those three questions. I have to answer them for myself. Let me end with a chorus and a psalm. The chorus from an old hymn written by Barney E. Warren says, It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Full of glory, full of glory. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, the half has never yet been told. And Psalm 30, the famous psalm of King David, verse 5, he says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for encouraging us this day to know that our sorrow is at best temporal when it fills our hearts. Help help our sorrow to explode into joy as we trust you and experience answered prayer. Because we honor your son, Jesus Christ, all for your glory. In his name we pray. Amen.